Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So as many of you know, I am a huge fan of marketplaces and specifically, I am a huge fan of their inherent network effects. But one of the difficulties that marketplace founders often run into is how exactly one can differentiate their marketplace beyond scale itself. So the question becomes, how do I build a long-term competitive advantage for my marketplace beyond just having a bunch of people on my platform? So to answer that question, I sat down with Marco Zapacosta, the CEO and founder of Thumbtack. Now, Marco and his team founded Thumbtack after graduating from Columbia and over the past decade have built a services marketplace that delights millions of customers each year. So it's no surprise that Marco and his team last raised at a $1.3 billion valuation from investors like Sequoia Capital, Tiger Global, and Capital G. So in today's episode, Marco and I dive into marketplace differentiation. Specifically, we talk about how unlike the ride-sharing apps or the food delivery apps, Thumbtack has built a platform around specialized and uncommoditized labor. Now, that's the key there, is this term uncommoditized. And as a result, the platform is able to provide a better user experience for all stakeholders. Now, we'll also dive into the qualities that Marco looks for when hiring top talent at scale, as well as how Thumbtack is enabling the backbone of the American economy. So let's dive in. Hey, Marco, welcome to the pod. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's relatively timely that we're having this conversation here. You know, as I'd mentioned before, I'd recently moved to Cow Hollow and Thumbtack was there for the entire process from teardown all the way through the move through the setup. So very appreciative of the platform you've built and excited to learn a little bit more about the founding story. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for the business. So would love to start out with what is Thumbtack and how did you go about building it? Sure. So Thumbtack helps you find and hire local professionals. So for whatever you need done, be it a move, a house painting project, a wedding that you need planned, Thumbtack has pros for any and all of your needs. And really what we do better than anybody else is help you discover the right pro. And what I mean by the right pro is the one who's available, who's interested, who's qualified, and who meets your budget. We answer those questions for you faster and better than anybody else, and through that, get you to a confident hiring decision. And that's really what you're after. You know, you have a need, you've got that to-do list with something on it, and you want it done. And Thumbtack bridges that gap better than anybody. And the interesting thing is if you go way back to the start of the story, that dream was the same. Thumbtack was not a business that was started because we had a specific need that precipitated this observation. Instead, we kind of did what you're not supposed to do and decide to start a business and then go hunt for an idea. But what emerged from that search, that hunt, was an observation that there was an enormous amount of potential energy sitting between these consumers, these buyers who needed services, and professionals who had the time and talent to serve them, but weren't able to discover each other. And truly, it was a matchmaking problem. And if you think about your purchases, the things that you buy in your day-to-day life, like all of capitalism has worked to make those as efficient as possible. It's about enabling your innate laziness. And yet here's a category where you have to work hard to spend money. It made no sense. It was broken. And, you know, we were in many ways not our target customer. We were in college. 
Therefore, we didn't own homes. We didn't have children. We didn't have pets. We had like no assets to speak of. So it's not like this was our own personal need, but it was an observation about the world. And I think the sort of animating force behind it is that there's so much talent out there. There's so much potential in the wide breadth of humanity and sort of service professionals that's going underutilized and through really no fault of their own. And so we thought, hey, if we can bring these talented pros to market, help them sort of market themselves better, connect with customers better, we make the end consumer's lives better because they have access to this talent and get things done more easily and also enable these folks who have that time and that talent to monetize it better. That's great. And why don't we look at the beginnings of the marketplace? So back when you guys were first starting Thumbtack out of college, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things to ask marketplace founders is, how did you go about solving the chicken and egg problem? Where at first on the supply side, you don't have any suppliers or contractors. And then on the demand side, you don't have any consumers. Yep. So then how did you go about bridging the gap between the two and actually creating liquidity in the marketplace? Sure. So I have a cheeky answer to that, which I use when I want to sort of deflect the question, which is you steal chickens and you build a chicken farm. And that's how you solve the chicken and the egg problem. And, you know, in that cheeky answer, I think is actually the kernel of truth, which is you have to find a way to provide value to one side that enables you to bootstrap a network. Chris Dixon has called this come for the product, stay for the network. We used to call it creating network independent value. And for Thumbtack, what that was at its start was we enabled pros to create a profile on Thumbtack and then to easily republish that on Craigslist. And this was useful. Similar to Airbnb. Correct. Very similar to Airbnb. Yeah, they've scrubbed that story from their past. We're more comfortable with that story. But the truth of the matter is Thumbtack day one had no customers, had no buyers. And so it was impossible for me to say, hey, John, you're a great professional. Sign up here. We'll get you more business. It was just flat out not true. What we could say, though, is, hey, John, we know there's Craigslist out there where there are a lot of customers, but it's a pain in the ass to get to. You have to post every few days. You probably don't have an HTML-styled ad. You probably aren't pulling in pictures. You probably don't have reviews. If you create your profile here, we can then do that for you easily and sort of repeatedly so that you're always advertising on Craigslist. And in doing so, there were two things that happened. One is pros came because this was valuable, and so they were excited to use the tool. But I think even more fundamentally and importantly, they invested in Thumbtack because on Craigslist, they were representing themselves. And so the content they gave us, how well they crafted that and sort of worked to get the right pictures and get reviews was way beyond just sort of a stub page. It was their page. It was their profile. They owned it. And that set the stage for everything that came henceforth. And it really starts with the relationship. It starts with the relationship with that pro. Many folks have tried to build marketplaces by like scraping unclaimed data, building profiles, trying to attract customers. It's very easy to show an informational search result, but that's no better than what many people are already doing. And truly, if that's all you're doing, Google will crush you. They are way better and will always be better. What we wanted to do was broker connections, be a matchmaker. And to do that, we had to have a relationship with that pro. And so from the get-go and still today, there's never been a profile on Thumbtack that wasn't created and operated and sort of stood behind by a business owner. And that is critical to this sort of idea of matchmaking that sits at our core. That's awesome. And you guys use the term pro, but 
I want to break that down a little bit more for the audience and point out that by pro, we're likely talking about a small business owner, right? So the backbone of the American economy. And that therefore means that Thumbtack is this ecosystem that is supporting a ton of livelihoods. So could you talk a little bit more about the tools that you've built to enable small businesses? So you're absolutely right. The way it breaks down on Thumbtack is about half of our pros are what we call solo entrepreneurs. So it's just them and they sort of work for themselves. And those typically cluster in the creative services. So think a DJ, a photographer. And then when you get into the home trades, which is the bulk of our sort of activity, that's where you see more traditional small business that has somewhere between three and 15 employees. And in our minds, we're supporting both those folks. Uh, the core of what we do to support them is we drive them more business. You talk to a small business owner and you ask them, hey, what do you need? What are you worried about? Just about 100% of the time you hear, I'm worried about my bank account. I'm worried about where my next customer is going to come from. I'm worried about payroll next month. These are very cash constrained and cash conscious businesses. And finding that next paying customer is very, very top of mind. And that is what we exist to do help them advertise themselves such that they can find new customers and grow their business. But that's not where our ambition ends. What we are investing in today and will continue to invest in for the life of this company is to help them not just grow their business, but run their business better. And today that means better tooling, better software, such that they are able to manage their customers more effectively. They can sort of participate in these digital transactions more easily, be it invoicing or payments or simple things like, hey, I'm on my way. You can track me like you can an Uber that's on the way. And these little flourishes that you, know, you and I as consumers have come to expect, putting those in the hands of all these professionals around the country. Then there's actually something outside of our sort of software suite that's also important, which is just enabling them to be business owners. And, you know, one thing we've been focused on recently is sort of benefits portability and helping them access the benefits that they need to go out on their own and to have that safety net behind them to give them the confidence to go be a small business owner and entrepreneur. So in that case, we partnered most recently with the Domestic Workers Alliance to help drive adoption of this new platform called Alia, which is all about helping independent domestic workers, specifically cleaners, get access to portable benefits. And we also sort of advocate on their behalf from a policy perspective. But, you know, really at the end of the day, our role is to enable these people who have time, who have talent to find success. And we do that primarily by finding them new customers. But over time, you know, we want to be a small business solution in a box where all you need to do to be successful is be a great customer service professional and have talent and craft in doing that. And that should be all it takes. I really like the benefits angle where you're treating your suppliers well, as I think a lot of the tension in the gig economy and with 1099 workers has been that lack of benefits, right? Yeah, though, it's worth unpacking why that is. What you're referring to, I think what is commonly referred to in the gig economy are platforms like ride-sharing, delivery, and the commonality of those is that the labor is a commodity, that it is undifferentiated, and ultimately, it is a cost center. It is a cost and means to provide the service. You know, if there was a delivery option tomorrow that was cheaper, that would be the one you would use. Yeah. If there was a ride-sharing company that was cheaper, that's the one we would all go to. And that pits these networks fundamentally 
in an adversarial way against the labor that is on their platforms. There's no way around it. And Thumbtack is dramatically different because the labor on Thumbtack, A, is not a commodity. Your plumber is not going to be your tutor, is not going to be your wedding photographer. Also, not all plumbers are the same. Some specialize in certain type of heating equipment. Some specialize in others. And lastly, all we do is help connect you with these professionals. They are a key constituent of ours. And so when they are successful, we are successful. And it's a mutually beneficial arrangement, which actually I think is the more traditional gig economy. If you think of journalism, if you think of Hollywood, these are industries that are gig economies in the sense that folks don't often have a full-time sort of wage-paying relationship with an employer. They go from job to job, from contract to contract, and yet it works because these folks are not commodities, right? If you're a writer on a TV show, yeah, you may only write for a season or two, but like that is a gig that you are well-suited for because you're a great comedy writer, and then you go to the next one. Or even if you're a grip on a set, you know, it'll come and go, but like you are a talented professional and you get paid a good wage for that. And I think we need to think about the gig economy more with the eye towards this feature of not having a consistent sort of wage paying entity and less about this sort of like commodity labor platform, which is, I think, not representative of the future of work and therefore not how we should be orienting our thinking on how to support it and enable it. So then you kind of hinted there at brand loyalty as well and platform loyalty. I'm curious for you, what do you think is a differentiating factor for Thumbtack as a platform? So speed, convenience, responsiveness, the ability to come to Thumbtack, search for what you need, find the right pro and know that they're going to get back to you and that you didn't waste your time contacting seven pros to ask the same questions over and over and over to not hear back from four of them and to hear that one isn't available. And then maybe you go with the last one just because you're so defeated, right, which is typically what happens on directories. We want to broker these connections in a way that everybody you talk to is somebody you're excited about. And everybody you talk to is excited to talk to you and therefore are invested in that conversation. And it happens sort of quickly and fluidly. So most consumer services, I think at the end of the day, go back to that point I made about enabling laziness. And that's like a, a different way of saying convenience. And we do the same thing. You have a need and we believe we are the fastest and best way to get that done. And ultimately because it's the easiest Interesting. So then if we go back to the ride sharing example or the delivery example of a lower price, so that offering that you're packaging together of convenience, of consistency, how much of a moat is that for you if someone comes out here and is subsidized by a massive amount of funding and can price undercut you? Yeah. So the thing to remember is that unlike in ride sharing, where I bet your preferences and my preferences are almost identical. Safety is fundamental, but once you've cleared that hurdle, it's all about price and speed. The difference, though, is you said you just hired a mover. So did I. But my job was different than your job. And what I was looking for in my mover was probably different. The specifics of my job, mine was weird. I was moving across the street. And I was looking for someone who was okay with that, who could have more guys knowing that they weren't going to be able to use a truck and they could just sort of dolly stuff across the street. Whereas mine was just, you have to be really good at Ikea. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's different. And that's true of almost everybody's moves. And yeah, there's commonalities and sort of similarities, but there is an enormous diversity of consumer preferences that's expressed on our platform. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all supplier. There is no one plumber to serve all customers. 
there's a diversity, an array of plumbers that serve the diversity and array of needs that customers have. So convenience sits at the core, but convenience in our category means enabling you to express your preference and efficiently get matched with the right person for you, not simply price. And that's why I think you've seen most verticalized sort of first-party plays in our space, in the local services space, fail. They have not quite worked. You know, Handy was probably the best funded of them all. They were recently bought by HomeAdvisor. I think that's a good fit for them. But I don't think really any of these have had the breakout success that three, four, five years ago, I think many investors would have guessed. And that's because it's not just about price. And in trying to build a sort of end-to-end walled garden that's branded and a first-party offering, you by definition, have to narrow your offering so much so that you actually make driving demand very hard and make it very hard to have Mm -hmm. a sticky repeat experience. We started from the get-go with this idea of like, this is all a big, broad, fragmented sort of world industry. And the only way that we win in, in it is if we help you navigate that and we help a broad array of customers come in looking for whatever they need done. Yeah. I mean, I can echo that as a consumer where it's such a hassle to download the Handy app and a bunch of other verticalized apps as opposed to just downloading the Thumbtack app, which in enterprise software speak is that proverbial one throat to choke, where I know that whatever need that I have, Thumbtack will be able to address that. You got it. So then taking a step back and looking at the business at a granular level, What are some of the KPIs or metrics you guys are tracking to gauge the health of the business? Yeah, so the way we think about it is there's kind of three audiences. There's our customers, the end customer, there's the professional, and then there's Thumbtack. And we sort of have KPIs for all of those. From a customer standpoint, we are looking at how quickly and consistently they're getting responses from pros which is the sort of primary indicator of having a great experience, and then the sort of review rate, you know, how often they're hiring and happily hiring, you know, satisfaction. There's sort of lots of different cuts inside of that, but that sort of end-to-end funnel is what we look at. From a pro perspective, it's about ROI, so making sure that the ROI we're delivering to them is both a good ROI and a consistent one, and we have various ways to track that. And then from a marketplace standpoint, we obviously look at unit revenue and how much we are able to monetize these matches that we're making and how broadly we're able to do that and the trends there and the sort of funnel inside of it. So it's like customer satisfaction, sort of pro ROI is the main driver of retention, and then monetization. So let's dig in on monetization there a little bit more. Are there any specific campaigns you guys have run that have helped increase the unit economics? We leverage data in our decisions always. And I think a recent example is, you know, as a very search-driven experience, something that we invest a lot in is testing new models and new sort of ranking and matching models. And these are things that can be tuned in lots of different ways to express a lot of different sort of objective functions. And so the challenge is always balancing the needs of the respective parties. For customers, helping them find the right pro for them. For pros, distributing the customers we have in the most equitable way possible to maximize ROI and sort of make them happy. And to us, sort of earn the most we can from all these searches. 
And so the team is always testing new models and productions and learning the trade-offs and learning about new signals and how we can sort of mine the data we have better or think of new data that we can then sort of append to these models to continue to, to evolve them. So I think search was probably the best example of that, but it's happening everywhere in the business. Interesting. And then on a personal level, I don't think anyone is necessarily born to be a CEO no. or a founder. You've been at this for quite a bit now. Yep. Any 10 years. key lessons learned in this past decade? I so, know that's a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, look, so I think your comment is right that this is not something that anybody is like born to do. I think there are a couple of characteristics that are important to develop to be successful. The first one is a tolerance for cognitive dissonance. And what I mean by that is as a founder, you're often faced in a position where you have to hold two opposing views in your mind at the same time. And most fundamentally, it's the view that you see something that the rest of the world has missed, which is like fundamentally egotistical and sort of self-confident. And at the same time, have the humility to admit that most everything you're doing today is, if not wrong, at least deeply suboptimal. And your job every day is to make improvements across the board. And so being like fundamentally confident and like humble and self-aware about what's broken is hard. And I think is not something that necessarily comes naturally. But thinking about that, reflecting on that, getting better at that. Another one is self-awareness. So leaders come in all shapes and sizes. There are ones who are loud and in the front of the room and sort of natural sort of cheerleaders and ralliers. And there's those in the back of the room that are quietly orchestrating and helping sort of lead from behind and everything in between. And my guess is if you would go find the successful examples of each, one common quality is that they're all very self-aware about themselves. And through that self-awareness, you can both know how you're going to come off and so sort of leverage your own talent as much as possible, but also recognize your weaknesses and hire to support that or at least sort of avoid working on the things that you're shitty at and finding someone else to help you do that. So self-awareness, I think, is really important. And then the last one I'd probably say is like tenacity. You meet a lot of these folks. I really don't think that it's intelligence that separates the successful founders from the less successful ones. I think if there was one dimension that probably most separates the sort of winners from the losers or success from less success, it's tenacity. Yeah. It's not quitting. It's being more stubborn and it's never giving up. And I think that is something that you can practice as well and hone as well. Yeah. I couldn't emphasize that more where that tenacity and resilience is most definitely the number one key to success. Yep. And it's also something that translates into our own hiring, whether that be for our investing team or within our portfolio. So then over the past decade, you've hired 600 or so employees. Yeah, well, even more. Uh, yes, so likely close to 1,000 given the current 600 employee base. Yep. What are some of the key qualities that you look for in candidates? Yeah, and again, you know, I'll be general. You know, obviously there's technical needs that vary depending on the role and specific skills and attributes. But to generalize across roles, I think the things that you see always helping, one is being proactive. There are folks who need to be told what to do, and then there are folks who just are motivated to solve problems that they see in front of them. Sort of How do you tease that out in a 30-minute interview? 
Well, that's a separate question. Um, <laughs> but let me list a couple of these and then I can talk about maybe some of my interview questions. Another one is, are they team motivated or ego motivated? Are you motivated by the success of the team or by signing your name to some specific accomplishment? I think another one is curiosity. Are you digging? Are you asking why? Are you questioning? Are you changing your mind? And I think the last one is just like ambition, hunger, sort of drive, you know, like, are you restless? And so those would be some sort of general attributes that sort of we try and look for. They map to our values and the things we care about. And then to sort of speak to how we interview, look, I think behavioral interviews are the best way to assess really anything where instead of having a contrived sort of logic question that is, I think, more of an exercise to feel smart from the interviewer standpoint than a real sort of test of knowledge, I think particularly when you're hiring, and this is, I'm talking from the vantage point of, of hiring sort of more seasoned employees. If you're hiring a new grad, I think it's a little bit different and you do to kind of just put a test in front of them and see how they do it. But if you have, you're talking to someone who has, you know, five plus, seven plus years experience, then you're trying to understand how they behaved in various scenarios. So to take the example of sort of curiosity, I would put to someone, tell me about a project that you were on that failed and talk me through what happened. And you get dramatically different answers from the folks who have sort of a surface level understanding of why they failed. And I think evidence a lack of curiosity, self-reflection, sort of willingness to question their own assumptions versus the ones who really drill deep, pull you all the way down to the root cause or the root sort of misunderstanding or the hypothesis that was wrong or whatever it was, and then tell you what they would have done differently. And that's, I think, behavioral interviews across the board. You know, the one for ambition that I often use is it's about pride. Tell me about the professional accomplishment that you're most proud about and talk me through it. And it's less necessarily about what it is, but what it signals about them. You know, how ambitious do I think it is? How quickly did it happen? How motivated were they to do it? So the questions are simple and they don't have a specific answer, but it's more the story behind the story that you're looking for. So then can I flip one of those questions back on you? Yeah, sure. A time that you failed? Oh, I got a lot of those. I mean, we have failed from, you know, hiring execs who didn't work out. We've had product strategies that didn't work out. We've had sort of technical strategies that didn't work out, marketing strategies that didn't work out. You know, I think I'll talk about sort of exec hiring, which I think is something that is common to maybe many of your listeners. Very painful, very difficult. Very painful. So I think the biggest mistake we made early on was believing that we could or even should audit the talent of that exec in the interview process. So when you think about it, you know, we were, call it mid-20s, we were hiring folks who had literally 15 to 25 years more experience than we did. So the thought that we could truly audit their skill or talent was crazy, and in fact was wrong. And really, what you should be doing in the interview process is auditing for fit broadly defined, fit with the executive team, fit with the manager, fit with the ambition of the company, fit with the style, fit with the sort of approach to problem solving, things that aren't right or wrong, but we have a way of operating that there needs to be fit with. And you often hear values fit, culture fit. I think those are just a subset of the fit that you're solving for. What's the time horizon this person has? Are they looking for an exit in two years? Well, 
I'm looking for something over 20 years. You know, that is something to align on. And then through that, recognizing that that the specific talent, skills, experience that you're trying to hire for is much better audited through a set of back channel references than it is in an interview setting. So interviews are for fit and references are for skill because it's really easy, especially when you're talking to talented execs, to sound really good and really smart in an interview setting. I mean, that's like they're professionally good at that. Salesmanship 101, right? Yeah. Um, What's impossible to fake is that over 20 years of a career. And you talk to enough people over the arc of that career who were beneath, above, beside that person, you start to get a pretty accurate picture of what they were like. Another mistake that I think we made in hiring, which I see happen all the time, is our wish list in terms of the specific skills or traits was too long. And therefore, you end up hiring someone who has a lack of weakness rather than who has specific strengths in the two or three areas that are truly important. Would you love to find the unicorn who's awesome at all dozen? Yeah. But that person actually probably doesn't exist or you probably won't be able to get them. So what you really need to do is say, what are the two or three most important things to your business for this functional lead to have and accomplish and go find that person? And that actually makes for a much easier search process too because you can start to go to your network and say, hey, I'm looking for the very best X or Y who's the best person you've ever heard of who does that? And then you go to that person, you ask them the same thing and you just on and on and on. And it gives much more clarity to your search process rather than tell me like, who's the best marketer you've ever worked with? Well, like the answer is depends on the marketing problem you're solving. So we can shift to the last part of the conversation here, which centers around the title of the podcast, which is pattern recognition. What are some consistent patterns or themes that you see across successful consumer marketplaces? I think marketplaces at their core are in the business of creating liquidity. And what I mean by that is matching customers with sellers and sellers with customers, with buyers. And who wins is typically who ends up having the deepest and broadest liquidity and through that, the best experience. And I think that's true in ride sharing. I think it's true in e-commerce. I think you've seen it, you know, I think what Airbnb did to sort of blitz internationally to sort of keep out all the copycats and really build this network globally was incredible and so savvy. So at the core, thinking about building liquidity over anything, like why does Craigslist even still exist? It's not because it's pretty. It's not because it's usable. It's not because it's safe. It's because it has liquidity. And that's why it's so hard to kill. And thinking about liquidity in an operational way. And all these marketplaces have slightly different ways of doing that. You know, you hear ride-sharing companies talk about, we want to give you an average ETA that's three minutes or less. Airbnb wants to give you eight listings or more. Thumbtack wants to get you three quotes from interested and qualified professionals instantly. It depends on the market because it depends on the customer and it depends on the sort of thing that's being sold. But like finding that operational metric that you believe is reflective of a differentiated experience that sort of drives loyalty, drives retention, and then being maniacal about it. And then just being like, do everything you can to drive it up and make it better. And on a personal basis, are there any mental models or patterns you leverage in your own decision-making? So I think one of the tensions that 
founder's face is like when to let go and how much to let go. And you want to feel like important and helpful and involved. But at the same time, you're hiring all these talented people for a reason. It's that they're talented and capable. And if you don't give them true autonomy, then you actually haven't created any real leverage in your organization. So the things I think about are like where and when I should get involved. Where do I both have a unique ability to help or sort of improve the decision-making process versus when should I not be involved because actually I'm net negative. So a couple of those frameworks would be like reversible versus irreversible decisions. We do things all day, every day that are easy to undo. We run experiments, we test marketing messages, we try new models in production for our search engine. All of those can be undone. And so basically I should weigh into none of them because all these people are plenty smart to know that if it didn't work, they should undo it and do something else. Now, there are things that you can't take back. A promise we make to our pros. A commitment that we have to stand behind. You know, putting in place a guarantee of some sort. Those are things that I have to be involved in and have to be supportive of. And actually, I can be helpful because I can create the comfort of taking those bets and take away that sort of burden and risk from somebody else who's going to feel probably paralyzed by that decision in a way that I can sort of help them through. Another one is questions about like where in the stack of a decision. So like behind every choice you've answered sort of where are we going, what gets us there and how do we do it? How do we build it or how do we do it? I should be super involved in questions around where. And so as teams are thinking about what does success look like for themselves? What's the goal that they're going to use to audit their own success? What's their strategy? What's their vision of their future? Like I'm super involved there. And I'm not the author of all of that stuff, but I'm a very active participant and something that sort of I need to be bought into. The what, I'm usually involved as like one more idea generator around the table who can be like, hey, I have this idea. I have that idea. But John, you know, you're in charge of this project, so it's on you to decide which one's the right one and to drive that and consider mine as if you would consider anybody else's. And then the how, I should almost not be consulted at all because I typically lack the context that the individual marketer, designer, engineer, product manager has to truly make that decision correctly. And if I have confidence that they're going in the right direction, if they're the way we're aligned on the where and the measure of success, then I should trust them to sort of execute on it in the best way possible. Not to say that they'll be perfect, but their batting average will be better than mine. So those are sort of two dimensions that I think about when it comes to my own time and where I focus. So then going off of focus on your own time there, you're leading one of the most successful startups here in the Valley. You're serving thousands of customers every day. So then what drives you on a personal level? I love doing what I do. So I love coming to work. I love working on this problem. And I think I'd answer that question depending on the time horizon. So what has kept me going for the decade I've been doing this is the mission. You know, I feel proud of the impact we have. You know, when I talked to a pro, like there was sort of a IT pro that I was talking to, this guy, Larry, you know, tell me the life story that he had being inside of a small business, sort of being worried about sort of stepping out on his own, finding thumbtacks, you starting it as a side hustle, realizing he could do it for himself, now stepping out and doing it on his own, supporting his family. And like, he's beaming with pride. Like, 
I feel proud. You know, I, that gets me going and I'm happy to do that forever. Day to day, week to week, it's solving hard problems with good people and just like getting in a room and hashing it out. And that keeps me sort of engaged because I like hard problems and I like being around good people. And last question for you here, Marco, what is a book that you've recently read and how has it changed your perspective? So did you read about the picture that was recently taken of the black hole? Yes, Um, I read all the memes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I'm trying to remember the title of this book. I think it's called Einstein's, it has Einstein in title. But what I loved about it, it's this story that starts, you know, 25, 30 years ago with this scientist who's now at Harvard seeing this sort of incredible confluence of factors that if you built a telescope that had the focal power of, that was the effective size of the earth, and it was tuned to this specific wavelength, you would just happen to resolve this picture of the black hole that's at the center of our galaxy. And from that insight, from the get-go, he spent the next 20 plus years sort of making that dream happen. And it's a story of him and the team, like fighting through that. And the book actually came out a year or so ago, and the picture just came out, which is why it's sort of salient. And it's like, that is vision. You know, that is like gumption and dreaming. So kind of it changed my worldview, but definitely stuck with me. And it's a reminder that, you know, you got to just believe and commit and go. You know, he had his dream and he chased that and I have mine and sort of gives you motivation when you hear stories like that. That is a wonderful metaphor for building a business and a great ending note for the podcast. So Marco, thanks for taking the time. Awesome. Thank you. Once again, a big thank you to Marco for joining us today. If you are looking for any help around the home or with a professional service like photography, I would strongly recommend that you check out Thumbtack. And if you enjoy the show, I love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can also check out show notes and more on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com and reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. Hu. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.